Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. My name is Derek Rishmaui, and I'm joined by the regular cast and crew, uh, Matthew Lee Anderson and Alistair Roberts. And today, oh, our, oh, our sp- Derek, Derek, what? did you just write Andrew out of the regular cast and crew? Have we made, so, you know, he he's graduated into honorary member of the show? He's a regular. He's almost at a regular special guest at this point. A- yeah. Andrew, if you're listening, that's maybe oh. a subtle hint. You should you should come hang out a little bit more often. <laughs> Which may not be a hint not, that we should not, schedule these further in advance for him because he's very not just, busy. Not just when uh, not just when the fun guests come. Um, <laughs> uh, speaking of speaking of fun guests today um, today we're kind of doing something fun we're we're going to have one of our own as our special guest Uh, matt just completed his defense of his defil at oxford Uh, and so what we wanted to do because he's been he's been kind of very tight-lipped about the whole thing uh playing his cards (laughs) close to his chest Uh, we've asked him hey how's your how's your dissertation what's it what's on so that and he just hasn't really been forthcoming and telling us the 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 outlines of the argument, but now that it's done and defended, we wanted to to interview him, ask him about it, um, sort of kind of relive the Viva experience for him uh, a bit, and uh, and grill him, uh, or really just find out what, what he's been what he's been up to, what he's been writing the last year or two or three. <laughs> um, so that's that's kind of the plan for this morning, Derek. Uh, or you morning for where you, I am. What? You called me a fun guest and that we're going to do something fun, which I just want to point out are not <laughs> adjectives that anyone in their right mind would ever uh, ascribe to either of those things, me being a fun guest or this being a fun subject. So, But thanks for well, being cheerful about it. Well, you know, that's how little I know about the subject at this point because of how well <laughs> you've kept it hidden. Um, no, but really, uh, at this point, Give, give me give, what's the basic what's the basic subject what's the basic argument for our listeners uh, wh- yeah. where did you go with this thing what have you done to uh, to the world so the um, the title basically says everything about what the inside contains and the title uh, that I submitted is in defense of children uh, with a subtitle. Um, pro and anti-natalism or natalist arguments, something like that, in Moral Philosophy and Karl Barth. Um, so within contemporary analytic applied moral philosophy, there's an emerging literature on procreation and whether or not it's um, in its most responsible form. The question is, is, is it presumptively permissible to procreate or is it presumptively impermissible? Um, what kinds of reasons uh, do you have to have in order to be able to bring a human being into the world? And how do we account for the uh, peculiar moral content of that? Um, and a lot of a lot of contemporary applied moral philosophy has a really tough time answering. Um, uh, Let me ask question, what, what are the, questions uh, about that. Oh. Yeah. What I was going to ask, so so where where, where are these where are these antinatalist um, arguments coming from? What are, what are kind of some of the most common ones, and yeah, where are you seeing them originating? Yeah, from? what are the concerns motivating them? 
I mean, you can see you can see it in lay level discussions uh, or lay level uh, sort of conversations. The most prominent place is um, environmental concerns, right? So. Um, I think it's Travis Reeder had a, a piece that went viral maybe a year and a half ago uh, on how we probably shouldn't have more than one child because environmental concerns are such that um, the uh, the population uh, is exceeding the amount of resources that the earth has. So that's 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 probably the most like politically salient or immediately salient form of argument that gets set forward. Population bomb. Um, yeah. Population bomb. That sort of thing. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, the, um, the report, uh, went viral that, um, basically I, I didn't read it. I only looked at headlines, but my understanding was that a new climate study basically said we have to make major changes or um, we're going to be a, a disaster in 20 years. Um, yeah. And if that's your stance, then you might think one of the major changes that we need to make is um, culling the population, um, that sort of ceasing to add new persons to our consumptive matrix would be a responsible thing to do. Um, that's, that's one major thread for this. There are others. Um, and ironically, I actually don't deal with the environmental question, um, uh, in my dissertation for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, I was more interested in, uh, postures of skepticism that have to do, uh, with, um, sort of immediate or local harms. So, uh, you might think, for instance, that we all have duties or obligations to adopt children in need. And um, there are many, many children who already exist, whose lives are not going well. And so one, one thought you might have is we should not procreate um, we sh until we have uh, fulfilled our existing obligations to those individuals who, who are in need. Um, and it's those sorts of arguments that I'm actually more interested in at this point than the environmental arguments. Um, but I do hope to take up the latter at some point. So, so that's the moral philosophy side. The, the, I mean, the, the constructive side, like I, I, I read a bunch of this moral philosophy and evaluated it and, and considered what was happening. And the constructive side was reading, returning to Karl Barth. And, um, always a dangerous thing, always, always a dangerous thing, <laughs> um, turning to Karl Barth, I should say, um, uh, because I've never actually prior to the dissertation, um, written anything academically on Barth. Um, so turning to Karl Barth and, uh, looking at the place of procreation in his doctrine of creation and thinking through, um, what the theological conditions are. Um, or need to be for us to have a standpoint toward procreation where we view it as presumptively permissible and maybe even under certain conditions or constraints obligatory um, that we would have a pl plausibly have in some cases a duty to procreate. Um, and so uh, trying to the, 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 the second two thirds of the dissertation is trying to um, put procreation into 
um, a theological framework that's really robust to, to understand what its theological significance is on the one hand, but then also to think through what are the actual like reasons that uh, Christians might have to pursue procreation rather than, say, uh, pursuing adoption. So that's that's the kind of broad project. You can see why you can see why I I laughed when you described it as fun um, because there's very little fun about it. <laughs> I mean, well, I guess when I think about antinatalism, I think of people like I think of people like David Benatar and others like that who present an argument from the suffering of children and um, persons in the world and the responsibility of bringing such persons into the world, which seems to me to be a certain form of, of questions of theodicy more generally. Um, how can our approach to suffering and pain and sin more generally from a theological standpoint inform our approach to procreation? Yeah, I mean, for listeners who don't know the reference, David Benatar is a, a philosopher in South Africa who um, probably about every four or five years, there's a write-up at a place like the New Yorker uh, about his uh, antinatalism. So on his view, procreation is just wrong. It's And there's no um, sort of mitigating uh, considerations about it. You're just harming people when you bring them into the world. Um, I, I think I, I will just say, I think Benatar is not a very good philosopher. Um, I mean, his argument, I should not say that's not right. I think his argument is entirely implausible and has been shown to be implausible, uh, by other philosophers. Um, and, but I do think that the general question of, of suffering with respect to um, procreation, it is it is a really pertinent. I mean, it's it's there's a live question here, and um, there's there are I think a variety of ways, um, a variety of questions that come up. I mean, one 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 question that you uh, would hear a lot is, or, or that would naturally arise is whether or not you think uh, a child might, you might have a reasonable expectation that a child would have a certain quality of life, right? Um, such that if the child's uh, quality of life, quote unquote, were to fall below a certain threshold, um, they, their, their amount, the amount of suffering that they would experience would dramatically exceed whatever benefits or goods they might experience that procreation would become sort of uh, a, a dubious thing to do. And that way of looking at things is pervasive, not only in beginning of life ethics, but in end of life ethics, right? Where um, in the Alfie you, Evans and um, let, let me just give you, let me just yeah. ask a clarifying question. Do you think that is rooted fundamentally in a in in just a generalized utilitarianism uh utilitarian philosophy of uh that, that's pervasive or do you think those concerns start impinging on people even uh, from other 
from other baseline uh, ethical frameworks. Uh, yeah. who, who are not generally utilitarians. I think that they are widespread, can be widespread concerns. Within um, beginning and end of life ethics, quality of life gets um, depicted as closely aligned to utilitarian concerns because you're sort of weighing um, benefits against putative harms and you've got some magical scale, <laughs> right? Um, and we're not sure how the scale works, but everyone sort of has this magical scale where, where you just talk about benefits outweighing harms as though we know what that means or we, or we know what sort of benefits. And it makes sense in very extreme cases. It, it, it becomes uh, much uh, less clear when the benefits and the harms seem uh, like they're... Um, uh, sort of closer to each other. But I do think that this is a deeply intuitive way to look at the world. And it might be the case that we're just all utilitarians, that we're all consequentialists, and probably to some degree we are. Um, but I think even if, um, even if you are not a utilitarian, even if you think that... Um, there are reasons to procreate that have nothing to do with the expected benefits or harms. I think it's still, there's still something of a problem there. If you say have an expectation that a particular individual would suffer immensely, um, you know, reasons, what I would say, Alistair, with respect to the theological dynamic is um, the depending on how you understand the reasons why God creates as they relate to the reasons why God saves, um, that might have something to do with how you think about procreating in the midst of harm. So if you think that um, there's something deeply intertwined between God's creative action and his salvific action, that he, um, it's the same love uh, uh, that uh, animates both, and that he's he knows he's aware of the the uh, demanding quality of the, what he he's aware that um, creating will demand something extraordinary of him. And if God creates knowingly in that kind of case, then the Christian has, I think, reasons to um, be open to creating um, and welcoming extraordinarily demanding uh, 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 persons, right? Persons, every person is demanding in some ways, but there are conditions and cases that do ask more of parents than others. And I think, Christians have real responsibilities to be open to that. Um, whether or not they have responsibilities to knowingly avoid doing so, or um, I, I think is a, also a, a harder question. But there is, there is some principle of welcoming the demanding and welcoming the suffering that goes along with it as a part of creating that I think 
a theological account of these questions can supply. I also wonder that from the other side, the, uh, the demand of the man, the demand that's placed on, on, on the person created, um, that I think of, I think of, yeah, it's some of those kind of antinatalist arguments. The, the couple that I've heard is, is just that the argument is that it's immoral to bring that person into the world, uh, by to, to place that burden on them. Like you don't have the right to place that burden on another human, uh, not so yeah. much to adopt responsibility, to adopt that sort of burden, but to place it upon, uh, someone who is, uh, not yet existence. And I think of, I think of that, that passage in Augustine on, uh, on, on, on the free choice of the will, he's got a passage there where he's reflecting on suicide and what, what people are trying to accomplish in suicide. Uh, and then kind of, he traces out the logic of thought and thinking, well, they, 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 they seem to think that, that non-being is better than being, uh, you know, that's why they it's kind of why they off themselves, but what they're actually, what they're actually trying to achieve is, is actually just a different sort of, uh, a different state of being and, uh, a rest, a peace, uh, in a sense, a Sabbath for the soul, uh, not non-being itself because non-being, like, how do you compare, how do you qualitatively compare being and non-being and then argue that non-being is, is actually superior. It's an incoherent question. Um, anyways, I, I'm just, I'm curious if you, if there were any lines of thought that you pursued along, along that line, not so much the responsibility that God assumes, but, um, the responsibility and the burden he places, and 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 how the good of of existence outweighs uh, that. So, is, any any thoughts? Yeah. There or am I? Yeah. No. You're you're right in line. I mean, much of moral philosophy is occupied with this question of comparisons to non-existence and the duties and burdens that are placed on individuals who are created. Um, at the same time, it's 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 difficult because it's difficult to. Um, compare to non-existence, it's really hard to say that someone would would have been better off had they never been born. I mean, if you think about Jesus's claim in uh, the Gospels about Judas, right? It would have uh, uh, it would have been better had this person never been born. That's a that's a um, that's actually a claim. I, I, I did some looking to see whether or not this has been much reflected on in the tradition, and it hasn't been. Um, but it, it is a really it is a really weird claim. There's actually a um, Peanuts cartoon from the 60s that uh, when population concerns were sort of uh, people were really alive to that. Uh, Fred Sanders turned me on to this. There's a Peanuts cartoon where Linus is bemoaning uh, the fact that uh, Lucy wishes he had never been born. Um, and Linus uh, says, you know, never been born. Good grief. Do you know what that means? Just stop to think about it. And then he pauses, says, why? The theological implications alone are staggering. Um, <laughs> which is just a delightful little uh, description of uh, the kinds of weirdness about human beings that once they exist, we think that their existence is the kind of good that almost becomes necessary that, that they're um, that thinking about them as never having been born um, raises questions that go straight to um, 
God's action and sort of God's uh, most intimate relationship with human life. It's unsurprising to me. I, I haven't read on free choice in the world, but it's unsurprising to me that um, Augustine would take up this thread of, of thought in the context of suicide. Um, I, one of the great, I mean, one of the great questions of um, moral philosophy is how these reasons attach to persons, because there is one paradox where um, many individuals, so if you have uh, an individual who is born, whose life does not go well, but they never realize that their life could have gone better, they will adapt their preferences and be subjectively happy despite their life not going well. So, you know, uh, this happens a lot in uh, for people in disadvantaged social circumstances um, where basicness, what we would look at in our privilege, we look at and say those are basic necessities. Uh, you need a certain level of education. You need the right to vote. You need all these things. People without those are very happy about their lives. They think their lives generally go well, even though from our standpoint, they often do not seem to go well. And the paradox is in creating people, there's something similar that happens. Those people will adapt their preferences to the kind of life that they receive. And that doesn't necessarily entail that it becomes permissible to create uh, in those cases, but it does complicate the question of what it means that we are, quote unquote, burdening people by creating them. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm going to look at that moral philosophy discussion and, and probably say something like um, the freedom to create, to procreate, is one that um, God has given to us because God honors the creature and honors the creature by accompanying the creature with his presence in our action. And that action includes the freedom to bring new individuals into the world, despite um, those individuals potentially suffering in certain ways. Um, and that Carl freedom, Anderson. I think... Yeah right. Yeah, you, you, but that's true, right? Like this is. This, <laughs> it is. I just. It was. It's a very. It's a very. Uh, it's a very Barthian turn of phrase. Um, <laughs> well, thank anyways. you. I. Uh, it only yeah, took no, me writing two thirds of it's a dissertation to get there, Derek. So you know. Yeah, no, it's not an insult. <laughs> it, you know, you, you you work hard for those phrases. Um, Alistair, you've been silent for a little when bit. We're I'm thinking about follow up. Oh, there you go. <laughs> when we're thinking about children in the current age, there seems to be a deeper question about why we have children in the first place. In previous ages, this has been taken for granted that we have children um, in many respects. And I think um, Stanley Hawass has an interesting discussion on this, asking why do we have children and asking classes this question and people being very troubled because ultimately when they're pressed, they don't really know. Um, they have some sort of instinct for it, but they don't know why we would bring children into the world. Is there something about what do you see in our present situation that gives this question a particular force? What is it about our sense of self, um, our social conditions, these sorts of things? Because this isn't the sort of question that they're asking in sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, right. even though there's incredible suffering there. 
Yeah, as we saw recently, as there was a, 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 a controversy online about um, uh, claims that Africa should have fewer babies. Um, oh, man. Uh, so, oh, man. you know, you're absolutely right, was, Alistair. I mean, the question bad. of why we, why we have children, um, I, I opened the dissertation, my introduction, by um, talking about an essay uh, or a paper that Elizabeth Anscombe gave in 1989, I think, um, where it's titled Why Have Children? Question mark, And she doesn't really give an argument. It's basically a lament. Um, she says something like, the, it's basically like the fact that we're asking this question at all is a sign of how far wrong we've gotten. Uh, uh, and I'm... I'm sympathetic to that. I do think that once the question is asked, it can't be unasked, that you have to be able to re reflect on it. Um, I do think that in our own time, um, there's something about the despair that a pervasively materialistic society inculcates that causes us to lose hope or faith in the future. And that sense of despair is, um, or that malaise makes bringing new persons into the world seem like the sort of thing that um, we ought not do. And that, that despair is, I think, deeply intertwined with the... Um, increasing control that we have over the means of creation um, to use that word advisedly rather than procreation it's one of the weirdest paradoxes of our age that as we've uh, improved the means of control the intelligibility of positively pursuing children has gone away um, that we've we've sort of lost lost that sense. Um, and I think there is something about procreating that uh, is an act of faith by human beings. Um, it's an, uh, it's, it's, it's a sign. I mean, Harawas will describe it as children as a sign of our hope and not our hope itself. And, and Bart has one moment where he talks about um, procreating uh, generally being a, uh, an indicator of humanity's hope uh, in the covenant. Um, and I think there is really something to that. And, and the materialistic conditions, like creating a kind of despair, is for me one of the most troubling dimensions. I mean, you can see it in our end-of-life ethics, in our uh, slowly encroaching um, uh, acceptance of euthanasia and assisted suicide, um, but the question of, of creating is, is the same problem, but at the, the beginning of life. So, so what gets me about this is that you, 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 you pull up that paradox of, um, as we, as we increase our control of the means of creation, our, the logic of procreation becomes foreign, which is, it's paradoxical because really, and we're asking this question of why procreate, but, but, you know, theologically we, we, at base, we know. This is God's commandment. Be fruitful and multiply. 
fill the earth, uh, you know, exercise dominion over it. But there's this paradox that like, as we seem to have increased our ability to um, exercise dominion over the earth, we have pulled back on wondering why we ought to fill it, or we wonder if we've filled it too much. Um, and I, I, at that point, I'm, I'm just curious if you ended up exploring anything um, in a sense with that kind of like the, that, that twofold, those, those two tasks associated with the image of God, uh, with our call as image bearers. If, if uh, in a sense, a loss of faith in God, the creator, we lose, and our sense of responsibility to God, the creator, we lose our uh, sense of the beauty of bringing into the world image bearers uh, and our and our and our and our place within the whole of 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 bringing to the fullness uh, the grand destiny of humanity, which is to represent uh, the Lord God in the world and to and to and to bear out His image to be the fullness of the body. I mean, I'm just going straight theological here, and I know you're writing. Uh, half philosophy, half theology, but you, I'm just curious, did you, did you do much with the image question and the two tasks in a sense associated with the image dominion and, and, um, and filling, uh, in that, in that sense? Only, yeah. So, you know, I'm, you don't have to apologize for going. It's a, it's a limited, I mean, dissertations are limited. You can only do so much. I I get that. So I'm just curious. Yeah. so, so I mean, I did do things with that, but indirectly by way of Bart and Bart's account of the image and how the image relates to the work of procreating. I mean, one of my one of my polemics, Derek, um, that came out of this was um, that that's increasingly just a, a, a thing that grates on me: is framing be fruitful and multiply as command. Um, uh, so. I understand the grammatical reasons for for framing it as command. I understand the imperatival connotations that it has, um, but it it fruitfulness and multiplication are um, fundamentally, I think, categories of blessing within the Old Testament. And um, th- there's there's a terrific book by Jamie Fiennes, um, which was his uh, thesis at your own institution at Wheaton um, several years Dude, ago on... I'm a Ted's guy. Come on, man. Trinity. Oh, sorry. Oh, 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 Come I apologize. On. I don't know why I was thinking that. Um, I it's was a, trying it's to... A, it's a fine institution. It's a fine institution. It's a fine institution. No, I was thinking will. of my, my friend Jeremy. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, get you guys fine, where you guys are at. All right. So Chicago anyways, um, yeah, it's all the same. Um, we trade students all the time. Exactly. We do. Um well, and there was that like Van Hooser was at Wheaton, wasn't he? But then he, he left. And he was, yeah, yeah. It's, it, there's yeah. a lot of trading that goes on. Yeah. Um, so Jamie Vians has a book on the progeny blessing in the Old Testament, and the thing that he points out is through the rest of the Old Testament, this kind of language and motif um, is associated with blessing and population uh, sort of. Sh- uh, decline is associated with judgment. Um, and from that standpoint, like it's, it's framing it as 
a command changes the texture of the work that Christians are doing when procreating. It makes it in the first place a duty. And I don't think that the the duty language is the right language for the church to exhort people with in this particular way. I think um, blessing language is the right language and um, uh, standing in readiness to receive blessing is the right language. And I think in certain contexts it could become a duty, but I don't. But I don't think because of, um, yeah, I don't think it's it's it has to be an obligation in that in the way that framing that as a command does that. That doesn't answer your questions about the uh, image of God and how that relates to to procreation. But there is a sense in which the the fulfillment or the blessing of the image is um, a divine work that there's um, it's sort of intrinsically impossible for human beings to complete themselves without divine action coming in. And procreation within the context of the image of God is very much that where there's a sign that God has to do something um, in order to bring this capacity to bear uh, and I actually think this this has this works itself out in very funny and curious ways with respect to um, the act of pro- procreating. Um, like we, you might not be able to intend to have children um, in any particular act. You might only be able to try to have a child. And uh, if you frame what you're doing when you're trying when you're aiming at procreating in terms of trying language, then there's room for God to act as it were, and to fulfill the, this dimension of the image of God through uh, his particular accompaniment of the creature um, in a way that I think absent that framework, God disappears and the possibility of um, us for forgetting his role in this process arises and despair would arise alongside of that. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the way that um, ethics and morality more generally are concentrated in the image of the child. So one book that's quite um, striking on this subject is um, Lee Edelman's No Future, Queer Theory and the Death Drive, which among other things, takes aim at the whole idea of the um, writing from a queer theorist perspective, the way that the whole moral order is upheld by the fascism of the baby's face. We must do this for the children. We must work this whole system, as he sees it, of reproductive futurism. And so this is a a quote from him. Pope John Paul II returned to this theme, condemning state-recognised same-sex unions as parodic visions of authentic families based on individual egoism rather than genuine love. Justifying that condemnation, he observes such a caricature has no future and cannot give future to any society. Queers must respond to the violent force of such constant provocations, not only by insisting on our equal right to the social order's prerogatives, not only by avowing our capacity to promote that order's coherence and integrity, but also by saying explicitly what law and the Pope and the whole of the symbolic order for which they stand here anyway, in each and every expression or manifestation of queer sexuality. F the social order and the child in whose name we're collectively terrorised. F Annie. F the waif from Les Les Mis. 
F the poor, innocent kid on the net. F laws both with capital L's and with small. F the whole network of symbolic relations and the future that serves as its prop. And this seems to me to be a very pronounced form of antinatalism that sees a certain moral um, network held in place by the figure of the child. And I'll be interested to know how Christians can speak to that sort of thing. Um, Man, I, I just can't get over the fascism of... I just can't get over that phrase, the fascism of the of the infant or the... What was the... Of the baby's face. Fascism of the baby's face. That is a... That is... That is stunning. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Do it for the children. <laughs> I I mean, my my first impulse... My first impulse is they can respond to that by adopting um, the most vociferous Bartian nine they can uh, <laughs> <laughs> drum up, right? Nine, nine, nine. Um, uh, but I do think there is this is this is this is something that this is some it's it's there is a possibility of pronatalism's going wrong and it's important to be alive to the ways in which um the our attachment to children can uh, go awry um and bart himself is um highly sensitive to this and i think in ways that distort his own account of procreating and, and parenthood and childhood. And, but he's understandably sensitive to it, given that he was in a context where, um, uh, racial, uh, sort of ethno nationalism had framed what, uh, parenthood and children meant in ways that were obviously just from the pit of hell. Um, so I, I hear those sorts of deconstructive critiques and Protestants, Protestants have their own uh, critique to be made is critique to make about attachments to um, natural families that I think have to be made in some ways, but more carefully than Edelman does it, and not with the um, uh, ideological rejection of any of the natural that he clearly uh, is on board with. Um, but it is, it there's, is, it, it, yeah. Go, Derek. There's something. There's something. No, it's just interesting. I, 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 uh, I was hearing that, and I, I, I just thought of. I just thought of infant baptisms that I've seen, the ones I've seen at, at my church. And I just thought of, uh, I, I just thought of the way seeing baptisms regularly, these, these, of these, of these small infants and, and the way it trains you to think of them as, um, as members of the covenant, as, um, objects of grace and concern, as objects of care of, as objects of responsibility, not objects of subjects. Uh, of these things, these are these are 
these particular children that I have, I now have a burden for. We have these, we have these membership um, vows and these, and the, and the response of the congregation. They they turn and they ask us um, if we will, you know, uh, promise to help the parents raise these uh, children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And it's just, it's an entirely, it's just an entirely different universe of understanding um, the the place of children within the community. I also do think that that I think there is built in there some of the protections that you you're talking about the, the kind of Protestant defense of just seeing these children as the Lord's, um, seeing devoting them to the Lord and 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 as the object of God's promises in His in His demands uh, at the same time. Um, there, it, it obviously maintains value and trains us to see them as valuable, but also it has built into it some of those de-idolizing um, functions to some degree. Alistair can say a lot more. He's, I, I would imagine, on on baptism um, on that. But that, that's just what struck me immediately. Uh, Al, do you want to add or deepen? Or um, taking a different not particularly. I think it's interesting. There's a very good section of um, one of Louis Marie Chauvet's books where he discusses the reasons why people bring their children for baptism, and questioning the ways in which there is an imagined God behind the request for baptism for children, particularly from people from a more nominal background, and many of those imagines gods are connected with visions of childhood innocence, for instance, or um, upholding the tradition, whatever it is. And often this can, I mean, I read out the Lee Edelman quote, which I very strongly disagree with in certain respects, but there is a sense in which the child has often become a sacralized figure that upholds the moral order when God has been removed. And the Death of God, um, that we thought about in the past, is in many senses the fear we have now is, a, in some sense, children removed. Um, whether that's the imagination of um, a film like Children of Men or something like that, or the threat of not having a, a future. And so the social order is held in trust for this next generation, and the idea of maintaining the environment, things like that. The moral force that that has is about our children. But there's something missing there that I think Christians need to speak to. And when we're talking about baptism as well, we need to interrogate what exactly it is that uh, informs people's practice of infant baptism. Because often there is a, a sentimentalization and a sacralization of the child, rather than a recognition that the child is sinful and we, and that God is the one who is in control, and we need to bring our children to God. And that, that's why I think explaining it each time, having having a clear having a clear pronunciation of of the meaning of the gospel attached to the administration of, I mean, this is why the word and the sacrament have to go together. Otherwise, we impute all sorts of uh, false meanings to it, and we we place our faith. Uh, wrongly, we 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 can <laughs> we can ironically divorce God from the sign and the symbol of what it, it 
it's actually doing that. The seal, we're, we're not sealing anything. We're not, sorry, I'm going, I'm going. No, that's, that's right, quickly. Derek. But, I mean, but that's Mike, Michael Banner, um, makes much of, uh, the, and I don't know that this is accurate. I presume it is, but makes much of at least one tradition in the early church of natural parents, not being present at their child's baptism. Um, and as a way of, um, chastening against the kind of thing that Alistair is cautioning about, about making even an infant baptism, doing this for sentimental sort of uh, iconic reasons that are attached to sort of the parents versus fully, uh, or at least, you know, bringing this child into the covenant community. So there are practical ways in which, um, the the kind of spirit of our age that idolizes children and that now, as happens with all idols, has turned against the very thing that we had once um, placed on a pedestal. Uh, there are practical ways that the church can caution against that, but it's um, it's it's a really delicate line for the church to walk where we have to be able to say no to the idolatry. Um, yes to the created good and um, to do so in an environment where still to say yes to children is within um, many conservative Christian circles to participate in the kind of sentimentalized, the kind of de-theologized approach to children and childhood that um, existed more broadly in our society 20, 30 years ago. Um, and so I, I don't know how to navigate this, um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that I think is, is the task. And I think really we're just all waiting for Alistair's big book on these issues to come out, uh, <laughs> so that we can know how to think about these things. Um, so get editing Alistair. We're, we need, we need this. It's not, it's not focusing upon the question of children, but, uh, well, well, you say that, but it's a big book. <laughs> yeah. we'll give it a chapter. There's, there's room for it. 450 pages, there's room for it in there. Um, Matt, I, I wanted to just kind of ask you a little bit of a concluding um, reflection question in a sense. It, you know, writing the dissertation, having the thesis, going, I'm curious, what is, what is the, in a sense, the one thing, either the one thing that um, stuck with you from the process of writing it, that the, or, or, or even surprised you, um, and, and as, as possibly the, the, you know, you write, you start writing these things, you start thinking about these things and insights are, are generated. You, you didn't think you were going to, that we're going to pop up in the middle of the argument and they stick with you as possibly one of the more significant points. Um, I'm curious if there is one like that, that, that you will just, besides the whole of the argument that will just carry with you or, 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 um, didn't strike you, but, but, uh, but but uh, got you that 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 are, was generated from the process. So kind of a concluding yeah. big thought. Um, it's a it is it was a very hard process for me. A lot harder than it is for most people. Um, it took a long time to find my way into a subject that I cared about. Um, and that I thought I could could do responsibly. Um, I do. I mean, I said it 
there was some discussion that we had um i i where this came up uh several maybe a year or so ago but this this fact that our lord and savior has parents and the first adam did not have parents um as a as a fact about how we see the world that one just strikes me as so significant um and when i when i you know bart makes much of the bart is christocentric so um christ reveals not just humanity in its sort of saved state under the uh, after the conditions of sin but also humanity in uh, our original condition in one way the the second adam is prior to or has primacy over the first Adam for understanding how creation goes. And if you adopt that line, and I think it's a reasonable one to adopt, there are problems with it, but if you adopt that line and you think the second Adam has parents and the first Adam doesn't, then the position of parents becomes um, just really important for how you see the world in a way that it might not otherwise. And so um, there are many aspects of this dissertation that um, uh, that will stay with me. Mostly, I just hope it's a credit to my parents um, and that it genuinely brings honor to them uh, because um, they are the presuppositions for my life. And absent their faithfulness and their action, I would not uh, I would not um, be doing what I'm doing. And so if, like understanding the value of filial piety in a new way, I think is, is probably the thing that I value the most from, from the last two years of my life. And, and that's, I think, a good place to uh, wrap it up uh, for today. Thanks for, thanks for sharing with us. Thanks for uh, letting us pepper you with questions, Matt. Um, and for our listeners, uh, thanks for listening along. We hope this has been beneficial and insightful to you, at least, uh, as, as, as beneficial to you as it has, it is, to, I mean, to me, I, I come, I came away with this, came away from this with a lot. Um, but yeah, for now, uh, we hope you have a good day and, uh, see you next time. This is Mere Fidelity. Mm-hmm.